Amen. Good morning, Harlem. Can we start off with the word of prayer? Is that all right? Our gracious Father in heaven, God, we, we want to come before you asking for your, your spirit to uh, worship with us, to clear our hearts and clear our minds. Satan is already trying to distract, uh, discourage, and uh, destroy our worship this morning, Father. We, we ask that you will kick him out right now so that we can focus on you, so that our minds can be undivided, our hearts undivided, and that you can, uh, we can receive the message that you have intended for us to receive this morning. We thank, uh, thank you for helping everyone to get here safely. We do pray, Father, that uh, your words will be well received and that our hearts will be wide open. Uh, we thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just wanted to uh, say two quick things. One, uh, in light of the uh, recent sudden losses that we've had so far, we've had Alexis being the second sister uh, we lost this year, uh, we pulled together some of our uh, grief and counseling professionals uh, to create a grief support group. Uh, This is not a long-term uh, group, just to be very clear, this is not a long-term thing. Uh, we just asked a few people to come together to give any of our members uh, any sort of support that they need, uh, because we know that, you know, Alexis is very close to a lot of us, um, and, and so we want to make sure that people get, some, get a chance to talk uh, through some of the emotions. So on Wednesday, the school will be open, 7 p.m. right down the street, PS 129 for anyone uh, who needs to talk to someone or, you know, just, just, just someone to talk to. Uh, we'll make that available to you. Uh, that's Wednesday, 7 p.m. at PS 129, uh, our grief support group. And then also the second thing is on, no, on September 29th, we have our Bring a Friend Day, which we want to encourage everyone. Uh, this is our two for two, four two, two by two, four two. Uh, we're bring, having a big service here, so if you're visiting with us, we want to invite you back September 29th. It's going to be a great time together. Uh, so those are my last two announcements. Amen? Uh, today we are starting a new series titled, Don't Just Go to Church, Be the Church. Don't Just Go to Church, Be the Church. Let me ask you a question. What is the church? What is church? Someone asked you, well, what is church? Is it a building? Uh, is it a place you go for weddings and funerals? Uh, is it a place you go to be somber and sad for one hour a week? What, what is church? Right? Uh, you know, to help explain, some people put up signs. And I asked a good friend of mine, Steve Harvey, to help me out. With each of Sunday one. just around the corner, uh, uh, I want to honor the unsung heroes of the church. I'm talking about the people who write church signs. Everybody that writes the church signs shouldn't be in charge of sign writing. Here are some of the creative ones that I found. Let's take a look. Walmart is not the only saving place. Here's another one. Jesus is coming. Look busy. In case you ain't doing nothing, he coming. Look alive, look alive, here he come, here he come. Here's a good one. 
Whoever stole our AC units, keep one. It's hot where you're going. Yeah. Yeah, we love you, but you going to hell. <laughs> then there's this one. Now is a good time to visit our pastors on vacation. Oh. <laughs> Who put that on? <laughs> this video doesn't help. It didn't help. So we got to go to the scriptures. The Bible calls the church. There are several times, several different descriptions uh, throughout Scripture that defines God's people. The church is called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, spiritual Israel, God's vineyard, a lampstand, a house of God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, and its Greek word, ekklesia. So over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some different, some of these different descriptions, uh, and 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 what was Jesus's purpose for his church, and the expectation of those who join his church. Amen. So part one of our series today is the ecclesia, the ecclesia. Let's look in Mark six, Matthew sixteen, verses seventeen through twenty. Matthew 16, verses 17 through 20. You know, it's important for us to understand what we're a part of. Because once you understand what you're a part of, then you'll understand your purpose, your role, and what exactly, uh, how, why is it that you're important in all, the, in all of this? In Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, there were rumors circulating about Jesus. People were wondering, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Who gives him the authority to say such things and do such things? Some people thought Jesus was demon-possessed. So there was a lot of confusion about who Jesus was. And so Jesus asked his disciples, well, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Son of God. And then Jesus goes on to tell him, you're blessed because God revealed this to you. See, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the word he uses is ecclesia. Ecclesia, when you look at its definition, it's the called out ones. This is a picture of the called out ones of the Harlem region. At our recent love feast, it also means the gathering, the assembly. That word assembly is used a lot in the Old Testament. We'll look at that in, in a few minutes. But when Jesus used this word as he spoke of the church, it was very familiar to his Jewish audience. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, God's people often met together as the ecclesia. So, over here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22, 
Deuteronomy 5, verse 22, it says, These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly. There are on the mountain from out of the fire. There on the mountain out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two tablets, two stone tablets, and gave them to me. At Mount Sinai, God used the word to describe the assembly as the called out ones, the ones who were called out of Egypt to be his special people. And so there's a meaning behind that word. There's a purpose behind that word. It's not just something to describe where we go every week. This is to describe our purpose, our reason for existing as a community, just as God called out the Israelites from Egypt we are called out of the darkness into his light. Does that make sense? So later on, the prophets, you know, it's in fact uh, over a dozen times out throughout Deuteronomy, God repeatedly referred to his people uh, as his assembly, his called out ones. Later on, the prophets uh, would tell of a time when the assembly would consist of all nations in Isaiah and, and Daniel. Uh, and when there were, would be a great assembly of God's people, from all tribes, all languages, people groups, from all over the place, all over the world. And God did not only refer to his people as the assembly, but he also referred to them as a holy people. In other words, a people that were set out, set apart from everyone else for his specific purpose. That's what it means to be holy. It doesn't mean that you're better than everyone. It just means that you are set aside for a specific purpose, a specific reason. You are a chosen possession is what God also says. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, for you are a people holy, chosen, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. This is how God sees his assembly. This is how God sees his people, holy, chosen, treasured, right? Let's go on to Exodus 19, verse 5. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. It says, although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know, God has a very powerful and holy purpose for his people. We were to be priests. We were to be a, a kingdom on earth. We were to be God's nation. Now, does this scripture, does this sound familiar to you? Kingdom, priest, nation? Let's go with 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, right? Said the same thing in, in Exodus a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So we're a part of something amazing, something I think we often take for granted. We're not just some region in a bigger church. We are a chosen people, a part of a royal priesthood, a part of a greater holy nation because we're God's special possession. Now, think about that. What type of attitude 
should you have when you know that this is what you're a part of? When you think about your, you know, you, you look at royalty on, t- on television. They carry themselves a, a certain way. They don't, you can't, like, I looked at, uh, there was this clip about, you know, uh, Beyonce, and, and someone had sh- touched her hand, and she had this look like, you're not supposed to touch me. I'm Queen Bay. I mean, she just carried herself a totally different. Now, before she was Queen B, she was just Beyonce Knowles, right? And she would take selfies with people left and right and, you know, doing, you know, throwing up gang signs or whatever. But she was, she was just regular Beyonce. But because her status changed, because she became special, she's popular now, she's, she's wealthy, she's, she's very influential, now... She carries herself differently. She's, in her mind, royalty. You know, there's a certain way when, to address the queen, the queen of England. You're not supposed to shake their hands. Americans, when we greet someone, we shake their hands, right? Or like we, like we give them dap or something like that, or we'll, we'll hug. Or, but you're not supposed to touch the queen. So when our president meets the queen, they're supposed to, Approach her a certain way. Why? Because she's royalty. She carries herself differently. As God's chosen people, we need to carry ourselves differently than everybody else. Because we are royalty. We are a chosen people. Now, when I'm talking about an attitude, I'm not talking about we look down on everyone outside Because that's not what Jesus did. But there is an attitude that I can't, there are certain things in this life that is beneath me. Things like selfishness. That's beneath spiritual royalty. That doesn't make up someone, that doesn't define the character of someone who belongs to a holy priesthood. If you're going to chance, read through the book of Leviticus. I know, I know, I'm reading through it now. It's very detailed. But there is a chapter on how the priests are to carry themselves. There is an expectation that God had for his priests. And that was just the regular priest. The holy of holies, the high priest, had a higher standard than the regular priest. Which is why Jesus is only the only one compared to the high priest in the scriptures. We are the regular priests of reconciliation. Jesus is the only one compared to a high priest because a high priest had very specific duties. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times I can feel really low and feel bad about myself. You go around your friends and you're like, man, they got it, they got it all together. They got this going on. And don't look at Instagram. This is just a bunch of lies. People only put up the happy stuff. They don't put up what's really going on. They put up all the happy stuff. So you're up there, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and you're looking, you're just feeling miserable about yourself because you ain't just, you ain't got what's going on. They're traveling the world. They put up all their photos of, yeah, you know, doing this, doing that. You know, they're not putting up the fight they had about on the way to that place. They're not putting up the fight and the argument that they had on the tour bus on the way to that site. They're just putting up the happy photos. And so when we're looking at, it's really not the truth, right? 
And then you can start feeling bad about yourself. You can start feeling like, man, I don't, you know, my life isn't as adventurous or as exciting as this person. But you're a part of something amazing. That no matter what's going on around you, man, I am a part of a royal lineage. A holy nation. What I'm a part of, all that other stuff doesn't matter. Because God chose me to be his treasured possession. So you are royalty in that sense. Because you belong to God. So the ecclesia from the very beginning was a group of people called out of this corrupt and dark world to be different. To be holy. You're not going to fit in with everybody because you're not supposed to. There are things that because we're a part of God's kingdom that we cannot do, that other people will do in their sleep. But we can't because that's not what what represents God. So, yeah, you're going to feel left out of some things at work. You're going to feel left out of some things at school. You're not going to fit into all the things. You're not going to fit in with the gossip. You'll sit there and be like, why does, why does my heart, my head hurt? Why is my ears ringing? Oh, because they're gossiping and I don't want to be, I can't be a part of it. So, yeah, they're going to look at it and say, how come you don't join us in our, in our, at, at lunch? How come you don't sit at our table? Because I can't get involved in the gossip. Oh, do you think you're better than this? No. It's just that my standards and values are different. I want to treat people the way I would like to be treated. That's what I live by. So, yeah, I can't get involved in that. You're going to be different. You may even lose some friends. But here's the thing. If people truly love you and love God, then they would value the things righteous people value. You should never feel bad about that. You should never feel bad about loving people unconditionally. When people are telling you, why are you spending so much time with that person? Why do you keep giving this person a second chance? Why do you keep talking? Why do you help so many people? Because that's who Jesus was. And that's who I follow. That's my model of living. So, yeah, you may write that person off, but Jesus wouldn't. So you may lose some people. You may lose some some popularity points because you're different for the right reasons. The Israelites were called out of Egypt, out of slavery, to be a nation of God's people. No longer worshiping idols and material possessions, but worshiping God. They came out of Egypt with great power. Seas were parted. Plagues were sent. Miracles occurred. The easy part, believe it or not, was getting the Israelites out of Egypt. Guess what the hard part was? Getting Egypt out of the Israelites. At Mount Sinai, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, receiving the instructions on how God's people were to live going forward. What did they do? They threw a party and made a God a golden calf out of the gold that the Egyptians gave them, by the way, on their way out of Egypt. God told them that you would spoil, you would leave Egypt with spoils of war. 
So while they were on there, the Egyptians wanted them out so bad. They said, like, here, take it, take it. Giving them gold. Imagine you leaving your job and people just giving you money. Go, go, go. Take your righteousness with you. Here, here. That's what it was like. God was taking them out of Egypt and he was paying them on their way out. And they took that gold, melted it down, and made an idol. Why? Because the practices of Egypt was still ingrained in them. Food. They started complaining about food. We don't have any food. You brought us out here to die. In Egypt, we sat around pots of meat. We were, we were well fed. Although you were slaves, you were oppressed. But we were sitting around pots of meat. So what did God do? He rained down food from the sky. And when they got tired of manna, what did he do? He gave them quail. And even that, they were ungrateful. They still had Egypt in them. Then the rebellion of Korah. Looking at Moses, well, I mean, who, who, who made you boss over us? Aren't we all God's people? In fact, you married a foreigner. She's not even an Israelite. What makes you so special? God dealt with that in a quick way. Opened up the earth and swallowed all of them up. I chose Moses. He's my guy. That should be proof that God's got your back. God's gonna, not going to tolerate people mistreating his children. It's only a matter of time, but God is going to deal with it in his way. Even Moses' own sister. Who are you? Why can't I lead? I'm, the, I'm older than you anyway. What did God do? Struck it with leprosy. Oh, my God, Lord, please forgive me. God is like, don't mess with my people. Don't mess with my man. I chose Moses. Just like he's saying, I chose you. When you go to work and you get mistreated or, or, or berated by your coworkers, don't worry about it. God's got your back. God will say, wait a second. I chose him. I chose her. You leave her alone. I'm telling you, God, God is no joke. If you're being treated unfairly in your job or your neighborhood, you trust God. In your school, God will deal with it. And when God deals with it, he deals with it. How about Phineas? They were having church. They were reading. They were calling the people back to repentance. And Phineas is standing there watching Two people run over into a tent to commit immorality. And he is like, what in the world? He took his spear and he drove it right through both of them. That's not going to be tolerated. See, there was still a lot of ministry work to be done to turn them into a holy people. They were called out, but they weren't holy yet. God had to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Equally today, we as the ecclesia of God called out from this world to be different, to be holy. I remember my first year as a Christian. It was challenging. I thought it was going to be simpler because I had all these friends helping me. I knew there were some things I would still have to work. I was still cursing the first week after I got baptized. 
Brothers are like, hey, you just cursed. I'm like, no, I didn't. You know, you you in denial because you're like, no, I'm 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 a disciple now. Still has some Egypt in me. There were some old friends. I remember the week after I got baptized, they were going on a skiing trip. Yo, let's go. We went, you know, that was our annual thing. And I'm thinking, maybe I can share my faith with them. Maybe I can, I can reach out to them. And, and that didn't turn out well. I know if I had gone on that trip, they would have been compromised. But I wanted to go so badly. Scheduling was grueling. I worked in New Jersey from 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. I lived in the Bronx. I had church downtown Manhattan at 10 a.m. On Tuesdays, I had class Tuesday morning. I had Bible talk Tuesday afternoon. And I had midweek Tuesday evening. And had to go back to work Wednesday morning at 1 a.m. Talk about struggling. Later... I would be late for work because I was undisciplined with my fellowship time. My boss put me on notice. I would take naps in the bathroom, in the locker room to catch up on my fellowship time. And she said, James, you can lose your job. And I had to take some change. I had to make some changes. There was still a whole lot of Brooklyn in me. People would, like, avoid me because of my disposition. And that's how I had to be growing up in the inner city. You can't look soft. You can't look soft where I grew up. So I had to work on a lot of those things, the way I talked to people, the way I reacted, the way I responded. There was still a lot of Egypt in me that God had to get out. But I had to make a decision. I had to make a decision that I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do whatever it takes, but I'm going to do it right. And what, what I did, and I got a lot of help, was I imitated the godly men that God put in my life, the people who had been doing this for a while. Imitated how they read their Bible. Imitated their prayer life. Imitated how they shared their faith. Imitated how they studied the Bible with people. Imitated how they were in fellowship. I had even had to imitate people smiling because I was so stone-faced. I had to make sure when I came into fellowship, tell myself, all right, James, smile. Smile. On the way there, I was hard as a rock. Because I didn't, you know, that's like I was saying, you don't want anybody to message you. you. You just had to, you didn't realize you had to look. So I go to church and I had to remind myself, Jay, smile. 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 Keep smiling. And then eventually, I started, to, I started to change. I started to grow. And I looked at some of my pictures. I'm like, wow, you actually got a nice smile. So, you know, I'm like, I, need, I do need to smile more. You know? What am I frowning about? But my point is, when God calls you out of Egypt, there's still some work to do. God's got to get Egypt out of you. And that's why being a part of a community of believers, it helps with that progress, that process, so that you can make progress. Because otherwise, you'll be called out, but there'll still be a lot of Egypt in you. I come out of Egypt, but Egypt was now coming out of me. You know, when you're with God's called out people, God's holy people, this process happens a lot faster than it would if you were trying to do it on your own. So I have two quick points here. Let's not just go to church. Let's be the church. We're everywhere. We need to be 
the church at work, at home, at school, everywhere you go. The shopping, the laundromat, everywhere. When you're a part of God's kingdom, you're representing God. You are representing the almighty God. And we need to reflect him wherever we go. You know, at work, for students and teachers and teens, this may be school for you. That's, when you're at school full-time, that's your job, right? Being an example of diligence and integrity, avoiding gossip, unwholesome talk, flirting, dishonesty and cheating. That's how you represent and be holy at your job, which is school. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do it with all your heart is working for the Lord and not for men. You're not working for a grade. You're working for Jesus. Because when other college students or or, or high school students uh, become disciples and they see your example, they need to be called higher, not like, oh, okay. This guy's barely getting by, so... That's what, because they'll think that that's what Christianity is all about. Barely getting by. Mediocrity. That's not what it's about. Jesus excelled in everything. And we need to do our best. It's not saying that you need to get straight A's. What he's saying is you work at it with all your hearts. We talk about at home. You know, for our parents, the biggest turnoff for kids adopting your faith is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy at home. Kids can smell a fake. Now that doesn't mean you have to be perfect because none of us are. I'm constantly having to apologize to my kids for mistakes or tone or whatever. You're going to mess up. Apologize. Admit your fault. Model repentance for them. Ask them, hey, do you see me changing in this? When you brought it up, I really took it to heart, and I'm working on it. Do you see any change? That shows them that you're serious about repentance. You know, kids, they learn priority and importance from us. They learn what's important from us. If we teach them to never miss school, to never be late to school, but then they're missing church and they're always late to church, you're sending a mixed message. You're telling them that school is more important than God. And they'll take it and they'll say, well, why are you making a big deal now that I don't want to study the Bible? We're getting into Ivy League schools, we're getting scholarships, but what about spiritual growth? If we teach them to never miss these things, to never ask about that, I understand you don't want to pressure your kids. I understand you don't want to, you don't want to force religion down there. You don't want to force the Bible down their throat. But if you're talking to them more about eating their vegetables because it's good for them, and you're not talking to them at all about praying because that's good for them, which message are we sending? Now, I'm a preacher. It's in my blood. I preach, and I'm thinking of sermons on the way to the supermarket, while I'm in the supermarket, on the way home from the supermarket. I know that I can be in preaching mode all the time. I got to make sure that when I talk to my kids that I'm not a preacher. I'm talking to them as dad. But they understand 
what our priorities are and what's important to us. They also understand that it's a choice you're going to have to make when you're ready to make that choice. But we're going to set them up to be able to make the choice. Don't get discouraged because a little pushback. You did that when you were young. Your parents tried to get you to do things that you didn't want to do. You rebelled, right? Did they cut you off? Did they shut you down? No. They loved you. They worked with you. And look where you're at. A lot of us are here today because of the seeds of faith that our parents pointed and planted in us years ago. That's the hope we have. We can't just give up because they have questions and because they have doubts. That's a part of growing up. I'm glad my kids have questions. I'm glad they have doubts because that shows they're thinking about it. I don't want a little bunch of robots just showing up to church and reading their Bible and, and accepting everything we feed them because there's no faith, there's no relationship. If they don't have questions, we got to allow our kids to go through that process. I'm telling you right now, kids, figure it out. I've had conversations with some kids here, right here in this church. And they figure it out. Say, oh, I get it. So we give lip service to God, but then we show devotion to academics, career, and sports. They watch us singing all the Jesus I Surrender. But then when we don't, then they learn, oh, so as long as you sing about it and don't do it, we're all right. One of the things, reasons why I stopped going to church at 18 was because I saw hypocrisy in my mom at home. We would go to church, singing, falling out, speaking in tongues, everything, pouring money into the plate, come home. Did you see what so-and-so had on? And I'm like, you know what? I don't want any part of that. And then what really did it when I heard him talking about me on the phone. Damn, I'm definitely not going back to church. <laughs> Parenting is hard. It's a huge responsibility. It's big to not just go to church and, and, and be the church at home. But I want to encourage you, when you drive home from church, when you're around your kids, you point out godly things. You can't apologize for being who you are. If you're a disciple of Jesus and the Spirit inspires you to inspire your kids, you inspire your kids. Because there's a world out there that's trying to influence them to do evil. No, don't take out your Bible and beat them over the head with it. Don't only show scriptures with them when they're doing wrong. Show them scriptures to encourage them as well. Build them up. But don't be afraid to model Jesus at home. They will thank you. They will thank you when they go out and they realize that their friends and their families are in trouble. And at least I got parents at home that are fighting to stay together, fighting to do the right thing, who are protecting me and what... What will they owe it all to? God in heaven. Because that's the standard you live by. You might consider Ephesians 4.29 before talking in front of your kids in the car. Let nothing unwholesome come out of your, your mouth. Only what is helpful for building others up. 
or when you're at the table. If you got something to say about me, about anybody else in the church, talk to each other when the kids are in bed. Or how about this? Don't say nothing at all. (laughs) You know, the Bible is very clear that our relationships will have an impact. And I want to encourage us to be careful about the models, the examples we set at home. Amen? I know it gets quiet when we talk about that because that's what some of us feel like we're failing the most. But don't be so hard on yourself. You're not perfect. Let your kids see what a struggling Christian looks like. This is what it means to be a real Christian. You don't put on a happy face when things aren't happy. You show them how to struggle. You show them how to wrestle. You show them how to persevere. Because when they look back, one of the things that I thank God the most about my mom is she taught me how to pray. She taught me how to pray. There would be days I walked past her room and I would hear her crying out to God. And I knew that's how I need to pray if I really want God to hear me. If I want to pour out my heart to God, she modeled that for me. And I'll never forget that. Even when there was a time where she was falling short. But guess what? Our kids will surprise us. They will amaze us. But it was because of my mom that I'm a Christian today. Because she taught me how to pray. She taught me those things. And then then God's people took me to the next step. So she helped me on my way out of Egypt. And God's people helped Egypt come out of me. So don't underestimate your influence. Amen? Here's the second thing that's fascinating about God's ecclesia is that there's an overlap of realms. In Matthew 17, verses 1 through 3, we see here the transfiguration of Jesus. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brothers of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before him Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So now, Jesus goes up on his mountain with his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, uh, for an out-of-this-world experience. Where Now, my question is, like, where on earth did Moses and Elijah come from? They just appeared out of nowhere. But that sign right there that God has the ability to overlap our world with heaven with the spiritual realm, because we know Moses and Elijah died hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. So for them to come back and meet with Jesus, and the Bible says that he was transfigured. That means he changed form and appearance from, and revealed his true heavenly nature to his guys. And so it wasn't like he just looked different, looked brighter. He actually changed. It was a physical transformation. That word is metamorphosis, what we call metamorphosis in English. Now, this overlap of realms is what the ancient Jews believe about the tabernacle, about the temple. Before Solomon's temple was built, God's presence would break through into the present age while they were in the desert. When they were in the tabernacle, God's presence would light up the tent of meeting. And, and God would, inst- he would speak to the high priest and he would speak to the people from this tent. So God was overlapping. God was breaking through heaven into our world to interconnect with us, to interact with us, just as I believe he does today. You know, we see 
here we see the tabernacle and, and you see the image of, of you know, this, this little image of, of what seems to be God's presence lighting up the tent of meeting. And, and, and so God's presence would always be a part of his people. When he was leading them out, he led them by a pillar of fire by, by night and a cloud by day. So God's presence was always with his people. And his glory would fill, would fill his assembly. So when we come before God, God's presence is here. God's presence is always with his assembly, with his called out ones. You may not physically see him, but believe it or not, God is here. Now let me ask you this question. If you showed up to church every Sunday and Jesus was there greeting you in the door, how would you come into church? If Jesus was sitting right next to you, how would you sing? If Jesus was standing next to you in your fellowship, what would you talk about? If Jesus was next to you passing the plate, what would you do? We need to operate as if God's presence, his glory, is right here with us. Because it is. Jesus says if just two of you together, I'm with you. You're having coffee at Starbucks with a brother or sister? Jesus is sitting right there. Married couple at home, guess what? Jesus is there. It's two of you, right? And he's listening to every word coming out your mouth. Good or bad. And I know there are times where I feel his presence. My wife and I get into it. I'm like, all right, Jesus, yeah, I, I, I will. I'm going to talk to her right now. I'm going to talk to her right now. Because you know you were wrong. You know you were wrong. But then there are times where Jesus will say, look at her. Isn't she looking lovely? Go tell her that. It's not just that you've got to bring up bad things. Sometimes the spirit is like, go and tell that woman how beautiful she looks. Go and tell that man how encouraged you are. Look at his biceps flexing when he's taking that trash out. Look at him there. Look at them elbows and the, and, and, and the shoulders when he's washing the dishes and, and reaching up to put it in the cabinet. And our single sisters, you know, you come into church and you're like, man, look at my strong brothers there fighting for the Lord, doing the right thing, not compromising. I mean, there is a reason to be grateful and we need to share that with each other. Bro, thanks for staying faithful to God. Sis, I appreciate your loyalty to Jesus. We don't always have to talk about negative things. You know, in later years when they settled in the promised land, when they finally got to the promised land, the tabernacle was eventually replaced with Solomon's temple. And above all else, the temple was, was the place where God's spirit now resides. Now, David hoped, was hoping to build a temple for God, but God said, no, you're not going to build it, but your son will. And his son Solomon built this temple uh, for God, where God's presence would be found and God's presence would be in the Ark of the Covenant. And so, but it was always, the point I'm trying to make here is that it was always God's desire to assemble with his people. 
it was always God's desire to tabernacle amongst his people. You know, it wasn't, it was against this background that the Apostle John, in John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The same word used in the Old Testament. Jesus made his dwelling, meaning that God set up his tabernacle. God set up his temple among us. Throughout his, his, his ministry, Jesus sent signals that he was the true temple. He told the Pharisees, you destroyed his temple, I will rebuild it in three days. They thought he was talking about the physical temple. Jesus was talking about himself. It's one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders were so upset when he would claim to be able to forgive sin because that's what took place in the temple. High priests would go in, make atonement for the people's sin. Jesus also functioned as the distributor of God's wisdom, teaching God's people how they should be on earth. You know, the church, whenever you travel outside the country, you, usually there'll be an embassy of another country at that place. So, you know, you go somewhere, like you'll have a, an American embassy somewhere, right? And that embassy represents the country that it's from. It's given certain rights and privileges, and, and, and so whatever you, you, you know, they will represent that culture, the laws and everything. And so as the church, we represent, we're, we're God's embassy on earth. You know, we're, we're supposed to, we're, we're called ambassadors of Christ, and the church is the embassy. So we, we are representing God to the rest of the world. When Jesus left, he left behind his ecclesia. He left behind his church. So how are people now to learn about what God's expectations are? In Ephesians 3 verse 10, it says, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's through the church that the rest of the world would know God. That's how he set it up. So after Jesus left heaven and, and earth is overlapping in the people of God, the church was now the tabernacle, the place that God's, uh, God's way can be made known to all the people. Anyone who escaped uh, slavery and oppression and joined the Israelites were now a part of the community. They were allowed to be a part of this. So whenever we add people to the church, we're adding them to God's assembly. We're adding them to God's ecclesia, to those who are called out. When we become Christians, we are no longer just individuals. Our identity is defined by being a part of God's body, being a part of God's people. And as the people of God, together, we form the living temple of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Heaven starts to break into earth. This is what Jesus was telling Peter in Matthew 16, that what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That overlap. So when we help someone come to Christ, we are, we are creating a bridge between two realms, earth and heaven. And what was bound on earth 
is now bound in heaven. Meaning if you're saved on earth, you'll be saved in heaven. Your names are written on our rolls. It will be written in heaven's roll. Now here's the thing. We don't control where people go when they die on earth. That's absolutely up to God. All we can do is follow God's instructions to prepare people to make this this change. Only God truly knows who's a part of his people and who's not. This is why it's important for us to not just go to church, but to be the church. To not just sit amongst those who are called out, but to live like we're called out for God's purpose. Does that make sense? The bigger the people of God become, the greater the overlap of heaven on earth becomes. The more disciples we have in Harlem, in New York, the greater influence God has on the rest of the world. The more disciples at your job, think about what that would look like. If you have more Christians in your job, if you have more Christians in your office, if you have more, more disciples in your school, if your teacher was a disciple, if your principal was a disciple, if your dean was a disciple, if your gym teacher was a disciple, if your coach was a disciple, if your classmates were, I mean, think about that. Think about going to the grocery store and the person greeting you is a disciple of Jesus. The person cutting your meat is a disciple of Jesus. The Uber car you get into is a disciple of Jesus. They're not going to jack up your price, right? You, you, you go, you're going, you're doing business with someone. The telephone company owners are disciples of Jesus. Wait a second, we're charging people too much money. We need to repent. Your landlord is a disciple of Jesus. Hold on. We can't be raising these prayers. Where are people going to go? Let's do the right thing. I mean, imagine if more of our world was, was overlapped with heaven. That's God's desire. That's God's dream. You know, and we're part of that. When Jesus chooses us to be one of his disciples, he calls us out of darkness into his wonderful light. He taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, Eddie, hey, Diamond, Dylan, Stacy, Willie, Annette, Kat, I need you. I have a critical role for you to play as I'm building my church in this world. And part of that reason I called you to myself and redeemed you from sin and gifted you with spiritual gifts, prepared your whole life was for you to play this critical role in the church, not to just sit on the sidelines. I need you, Edwin. I need you, Christopher. I need you, Amora. I need you, Benito. I need you, Harlem. Will you join me as I build my church? Because it is the only hope for this world. How do you say no to an invitation like that? How do you blow that off? Saying, sorry, Jesus, I know you're busy building your church, but I got, a, I got a lot going on. I got bills to pay. I got errands to run. I got work projects to finish. I got dates to go on. I got TV series to watch. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing some of those things. But when we make excuses to not do what Jesus calls us to do because of those things, 
That's when it's a bad thing. How can we say we love God, that he's our greatest treasure, that he's our greatest joy, our greatest delight, and don't engage in building his church? When you don't have time, courage, and faith, you need to ask for it. Instead of saying, I'm busy, say, God, you know what? Free up my schedule. That's what, that's what someone who really wants to build will pray. God, I, like, I got a lot going on. Take, some, take away the unnecessary things so that I can do what you called me to do. I mean, I remember disciples, and this inspired me as a young Christian. When I, was, when I would talk about my Tuesday schedule, they would say, you know what? You need to pray that God gives you a different job. I'm like, we can pray that? But you know how much faith that takes? I'm like going to church half dead, and I'm thinking, I, I want to do this, but I, I got to work. You need to pray that God will give you a job that fits the kingdom schedule. We used to pray the prayers like that because we were called out. We knew that what we were a part of was more important and that a job was just a means to help us go on dates, give our contribution, buy some clothes, keep some food on the table. But we knew that this was not our home, that we were invested in something greater. And we prayed prayers that were in connection with God's will. And we ask God to move in ways that we couldn't move on our own. And we saw God do incredible things. You know, I want to encourage every person here to pray a prayer. I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. God, in this brand new day, I once again commit myself with vigor to your role to the role that you have called me to play in the building of your church. And as in every day, I'm still struck with awe and wonder that you would include me in this amazing, life-giving, world-transforming endeavor called the church. So today, I joyfully offer you again my love, my heart, my talents, my energy, my creativity, my faithfulness, my resources, and my gratitude. I commit all of myself to the role that you have assigned to me in the building of your church so that it will thrive in our city and in our world. So I will bring my best to the table every day, God. You deserve it, and your church deserves it as well. Amen. You know, I believe if we pray this prayer, we'll start to see our faith grow. We'll start to see our hearts change. We'll start to appreciate more what we're a part of. You'll find little things and less things to complain about. Church is not perfect. But we are called by a perfect God. And we, God's got our back. We can't just go to church. We have to be the church. Can you imagine what would happen in our world if every person who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus would pray that prayer of surrender every single day and then get up off their knees and go out and be full on for God in building his church. You know, I don't think that our minds would be able to grasp what would happen in the church in our city if every disciple did that. We would be blown away.
we wouldn't be able to contain what God is doing. So church, let's not just show up or go to church. Let's be the church. Amen? So next week we'll, be, we'll talk about uh, one of the different characteristics of the church. To God be the glory.